One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we talk about life and death among cancer cells. It's been a dogma for a long time that one of the properties of cancer cells is to be immortal, to have no limit to how much they can divide. We were astonished to find that many of the melanomas just did not go on dividing forever in culture. We hear how robot designers are learning from biological evolution we try and borrow ideas from biological evolution. We package it into a computer, and the computer in simulation is then able to evolve virtual robots competing within a virtual world for us. And the British Medical Journal brings us more bad news about arsenic in drinking water. High levels of arsenic from drinking water has been associated with higher risk of skin cancer and also internal cancers, including lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, and liver cancer. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My colleague Andrew Jack, FT's pharmaceuticals correspondent, is on the phone in Berlin, where he's attending a conference. Hello, Andrew. Hello there, Clive. What's this conference about? This has been convened by the German Population Fund and various other non-governmental as well as government bodies to talk about research for global health, particularly during a time of austerity. And, of course, it's quite interesting, given that everyone talks about the short-termism of shareholder returns and therefore how private companies very often veer away from R&D. But, of course, with the political cycles also being quite short, the challenge of investing for the long term without any short-term, immediate, tangible result, and a result that's very often, of course, abroad in developing countries, is quite difficult for German politicians, like others, to sell their electorates. But it is interesting that they've actually started investing more in research and development in neglected diseases through their Ministry of Education and Research rather than conventionally what you have in a lot of countries like DFID in the UK where it's through development budgets. So a little note of optimism and the gloom. I'd also like to introduce our special guest in the studio, Dorothy Bennett, who's Professor of Cell Biology at St George's, University of London. She's come to talk about her exciting research into mortality and immortality of cancer cells. Now, a lot of people think of cancer cells as being effectively immortal, capable of dividing indefinitely into new cells, and this is one reason why they're so dangerous. But your work shows that tumour cells do sometimes grow old and die. So tell us about the limits to immortality in cancer cells. As you say, it's been a dogma for a long time that one of the properties of cancer cells is, is to be immortal, to have no limit to how much they can divide. So we study 
melanoma, which is a pigmented type of skin cancer, the most dangerous type of skin cancer, we wanted to find out when immortality develops because normal cells are not immortal. They just have a limit. They stop growing and that's called cell senescence. We were astonished to find that many of the melanomas just did not go on dividing forever in culture. And what stopped them dividing forever? The ends of the chromosomes, which are called telomeres, and those get shorter and shorter at every division. But in cancer cells, there's an enzyme which actually comes from the germline, from eggs and sperm, uh, normally have this enzyme, which maintains those protective chromosome ends. And that enzyme becomes expressed in cancer cells. So we found that primary, that's early cancer cells from melanomas, don't have that telomerase. And so their chromosomes are not protected. And when they're not protected, the chromosomes get joined together by the cell. So then when the cell tries to divide, they get torn apart again. And so the chromosomes get really severely damaged. It's called crisis. Early melanomas are are going into crisis. If in melanoma, the vast majority of cancer cells are not immortal, they become senescent and die off, why do we have to worry about them? Well, you could say that it explains why early melanoma is almost curable. So if you have a melanoma and you go to the doctor quickly and have it cut off, you have an excellent chance that there's no melanoma anywhere else in your body and that's it, it's cured. But if you wait for a bit longer before you go to the doctor, then these cells that were not immortal may by then have changed to become immortal. So they have gained this enzyme telomerase that we were talking about and therefore they are now able, if they move around the body, to form new tumour masses, and those are dangerous, as we all know, and can kill the patient. And presumably it's only a tiny proportion of cancer cells that become immortal. That's right, yes. It's an extremely rare event for them to, to do that, to acquire their telomerase. So if we're looking at the clinical significance of this work, is it more important to stop the early cancer cells becoming immortal in the first place, the few that do? Or is it more important later to find ways of switching off the immortality of the ones that have become immortal? I'd say both of those are important. This is more of an explanation broadly for why removing cancers at an early stage can cure them. If we know that immortality is very important for the later stages of cancer, then that provides a way into therapy. And one of those approaches is using your work, isn't it? Yes, this is an attempt to develop drugs that will re-induce senescence in cancer cells. So senescence, this process of stopping dividing, which normal cells do and cancer cells don't. We're working with AstraZeneca and possibly with some other companies to screen many compounds to see if they will induce Um, senescence using primarily melanoma cells. In other words, the process that they escaped from in the first place and went into crisis. Andrew, as pharmaceuticals correspondent, you know that there's a vast amount of cancer drug R&D going on. What do you make of this? Do you have any questions for Dot? I suppose I'm just wondering whether 
you think there are sufficient drug companies researching in this area or whether it's some, you know, there's been a little bit of disillusionment and pulling back? Disillusionment? Well, I don't think they've even really thought about cell senescence as a possible target. Drug companies like to stay with things they are familiar with, perhaps, and, and so, like killing the cancer cells, would have seemed more reliable rather than just stopping them growing. But in fact, there are several cancers like melanoma, like pancreatic, like glioblastoma, which are very resistant to killing and which might be susceptible to this type of, of novel approach. I hope so. Can I just ask you one other thing? We've been hearing a lot in the medical press about cancer stem cells, the cells that give rise to tumour cells. How do they fit in with your work? Well, in some types of cancers, and that would include prostatic cancer, there's quite good evidence for a special population of cells that you could call stem cells, which uh, do or much of the proliferating and which have telomerase. In melanoma, the story has been very controversial and different research groups have produced different arguments about stem cells. But the overall consensus, I think, at the moment is that there's no special population in melanoma, that there may be cells sort of switching in and out of a sort of stem cell state reversibly, but that if you take away all the stem cells, a melanoma cell population will produce them again from the other cells. That's very interesting. Now, total change of subject. I was in Budapest last week at Europe's biennial Future and Emerging Technologies Conference, and I heard that and saw a lot of fascinating research on subjects like robotics and new applications of computing. One particularly interesting speaker was Josh Bongard, a computer scientist at the University of Vermont. I asked him to describe his work enlisting evolution to help design robots. My particular approach to robots is realizing that the robots we want to create now and in the future are very complex machines. And often the robots that we want to build are non-intuitive. It's very difficult for a human engineer to think up and design how this robot should be put together. So in my group, we try and borrow ideas from biological evolution, where biological evolution has already produced uncountable numbers of adaptive machines, which are organisms. We use evolution, we package it into a computer, and the computer in simulation is then able to evolve virtual robots competing within a virtual world for us. We pose a problem for the robots to solve, and they compete amongst themselves to solve the problem as best they can. And how do you then step on from the robots in the computer or on its screen into real physical robots moving around? Once the computer has evolved a simulated robot for us that does the task, we then use 3D printers or other new manufacturing processes to build a physical version of one of our virtual creatures. And now we have a physical robot that can move about in the real world. And if we do the transfer from simulation to reality well, our physical robot does in the real world what its virtual counterpart did in the virtual world. What we're trying to do is evolve adaptive robots which can 
alter their way of doing things as the real world changes. So uh, as an example, we would like to create something very humble, like a simple set of robots that would work on a construction site, and they might move bricks from one pile and put them somewhere else. Even the simple task of picking up objects and carrying them somewhere else on a construction site, they're going to need to adapt their mode of operation when it rains, as construction movers, construction workers move in and out of their area of action. Uh, and so on. Are they going to be made of soft, pliable materials, or are they going to be more traditional, hard, mechanical robots? We actually just concluded a session on soft robotics, which is just in the last two or three years an emerging area in robotics where, as you mentioned, we're moving away from rigid machines made out of hard metal and jointed skeletons and so on toward uh, softer robots. So um, you might have a, a bunch of uh, robots made up of sort of soft bean bags, and these bean bags are actuated. They can move about on their own. They can attach and detach from other bean bags. And if you can imagine it, all of these things together comprise a robot. Dot, does that appeal to you? Can you imagine soft robots being evolved to help you in your lab, or does it seem just completely out of your world? Well, obviously, it's it's a a very long way from today's reality. Uh, I'm sure that robotics will advance quite rapidly if we allow it to, and uh, that we we do have to be quite careful about, about the programming. It's very fashionable now, actually, for people working in the physical sciences and robotics and computer science to be inspired by biology, whether it's evolution or the shapes and mechanics of insects and other animals and get them to make things. Now, let's hear from Duncan Jarvis at the British Medical Journal with his regular fortnightly contribution to FT Science. Thanks, Clive. Zamsam water reportedly from the holy city of Mecca and now on sale in the UK, has hit the headlines. Reports from the BBC say that it contains levels of arsenic that exceed international safety standards. Arsenic is a natural element that's found throughout the Earth's crust. It can leach into groundwater and hence into drinking water. It's not only in Mecca that the problem exists. Argentina and Chile and South America... Parts of the USA and China all have water supplies that contain arsenic, but one of the places most affected is Bangladesh. WHO and the US standard for arsenic in drinking water is 10 ppb. In Bangladesh, it's been estimated that more than 50 million people have been exposed to greater than 10 ppb, and 35 million have been exposed to more than 50 ppb. Dr. Yu Chen from New York University's medical school, whose group have been studying the effects of arsenic in Bangladesh. In total, it's been estimated that 57 million people in the country have been exposed to greater than the WHO's maximum limit. High levels of arsenic from drinking water has been associated with higher risk of skin cancer and also internal cancers, including lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer and liver cancer. These levels of high exposure have been also related to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, pulmonary and neurological abnormality. The work Dr Chen and her group published this week in the BMJ was looking specifically at arsenic exposure and cardiovascular disease. We found that there is a dose-response relationship between arsenic exposure and overall cardiovascular disease mortality. In addition, uh, individuals who were ever smokers experienced higher risk of 
heart disease due to arsenic exposure, even at a moderate level. Essentially, the more arsenic a person is exposed to, the greater their risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. If they smoke or have ever smoked, that risk is increased further. So, based on our observed estimates, about 29 of deaths from heart disease in our study population can be attributed to arsenic concentration at the moderate level. That's 29 out of the 198 deaths in the study, which were attributed to cardiovascular disease. It doesn't seem like a great deal, but when you think of the number of people who have been exposed to these elevated levels of arsenic, 57 million in Bangladesh alone, and that cardiovascular disease contributes 40% of all deaths, the numbers soon add up. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ, Andrew. When you think of all the sort of medical issues affecting the developing world, and you've been talking earlier about vaccines and infectious diseases, we shouldn't forget about these environmental problems, should we? No, of course they're huge there, and then of course it gets into the whole issue of prevention,、um, as it were, in a more low-tech way, whether it's pollutants、um, and, of course, lifestyle factors, as much as vaccines and more sophisticated approaches against infectious disease. It's a huge problem. And a growing one, of course, with industrialisation. Do you think resources are perhaps too much spent on what Western scientists and medical researchers think are the more interesting problems, which would be infectious diseases, and less on these perhaps sort of lower tech things? I think that's right, and also, of course, a lot of these issues are related to broader economic development, and you can easily focus on the technical health fix, and not enough on the the broader issues of improved lifestyle and sanitation and nutrition that will help gradually also tackle disease in the way it's been reduced in richer countries. I think that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week. All that's left for me now is to thank Dot Bennett for coming into the studio. Andrew Jack for joining us from Germany, and Duncan Jarvis for his BMJ contribution. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com/podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to twenty-five percent by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, six thousand American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.